Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about some of the most notable, or some of my favorite, scores from January, February, and March 2022. Of course, not all of these films were actually released during that period, but this is when those scores were officially released. Before I get into that, however, and I know that this is now, I don't know, five or six weeks old, but... We can't forget that the Academy Awards happened very recently, or maybe not so recently, and that Hans Zimmer won the Best Score Oscar for his work on Dune. And I think most people were happy about that. Frankly, all the scores were deserving, and that was among my top ten favorites of 2021. It does surprise me there were people that didn't enjoy the score, but that's another conversation. The flip side of that, though, is having to recognize that the Oscars really treated multiple categories very poorly, including best score. And the ratings were the second worst they've ever been. Second, of course, to last year. And so you hope that maybe they've learned a lesson of not to cut the awards and the actual ceremony itself and the presentation speeches and the actual show, the whole point, in favor of really trying to appeal to groups that aren't interested. But unfortunately, we'll have to wait another 11 months to see. Now, the first few scores I'll talk about actually are all films that released in 2021. The first is The Heart of They Fall by James Samuel, who actually directed the film as well. And it's utterly, utterly refreshing. One of the most interesting, unique scores I've heard in a very long time. Where it has a mixture of more traditional Western, capital W, film, music. I mean, what you'd expect in that classic Americana West. But with a mixture of soul and hip-hop and 19th century field songs. And it creates this really fascinating blend that leads into the revisionist western feel that the movie itself has and it does a great job of presenting us a western that we haven't really seen before one that is really focused on black leads the american western film has so whitewashed the actual history there that Samuel's score and film act as a counterweight to what's effectively been a century of what technically is the revisionism. I I love this. It's it's just so so unique and so interesting and something that you can really listen to again and again. The next score is Carter Burwell's The Tragedy of Macbeth. And there's really two main themes in this score. But for the most part, they're all really quite dour and gloomy. This is a score that, really from the first moments, lets you know nothing's going to end happily here. And, I mean, this is a, a play that's been around for about 400 years, so I'm not really worried about spoiling anything. But it sets your expectations immediately that this is going to be a bit of a draining, mystical experience. And that's what it is. It's just a ever-present, omniscient atmosphere that sucks the life out of you and turns its characters into these selfish, possessed spirits. 
Frustratingly, it makes you realize that Burwell doesn't really compose that many scores, or at least not many per year. So you hear it, and you immediately want more and new. So fingers crossed that maybe we get some more. One thing about this is the score release actually has a ton of dialogue. And while, of course, the performances, especially Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, are all good, it's a shame that they very much overshadow and overwhelm the music in the score release. There are, of course, score releases where there's a really good balance, like Dead Man, for instance, or more recently, Stephen Price's score for David Attenborough, Life on Our Planet, where it has a brilliant balance, where David Attenborough's dialogue comes through to the forefront when it's necessary, but it never feels like it overwhelms the music all of the time. And I think here that balances off a little bit. Now the, I think there was a four-year consideration version released in December that, from my memory, omitted the dialogue. And I don't know if that's still floating around, but if it is, I would recommend trying to find it, just because it's just the music, and the music is so darn good. Now, one more 2021 film is Benedetta by Anne Dudley. And not surprisingly, an Anne Dudley score, it's great. And it's a beautiful orchestral work. It's very string-heavy, it's elegant, but there's a lot of tension to it. And I expected it to be more about this forbidden romance going on. But the music really is about the intrigue of it, the danger of it, and the fallout from it. It's not romantic, necessarily. But the romance is always present. The most striking aspect of it is that there's a really strong female choral vocals sung, I think, in Latin, which, not surprisingly, give it an undeniable, unmissable Catholic feeling, setting up, of course, the setting for the film itself. But for some reason, although the film got a fair amount of attention, although less than you'd expect, I think the music was really overlooked. And another overlooked score, finally we're entering 2022, was Death of the Nile by Patrick Doyle. And this is just a really, really fun, solid orchestral work. It's tense and ominous, as you'd expect from something that's really a murder mystery, a period murder mystery. But there's a little bit of campiness to the film as well. Kenneth Branagh's having fun with it. And Patrick Doyle does too. And he injects enough fun so that it never becomes a dour score, or where the, the tension and the seriousness overwhelms. But he strikes the balance, where it's not so fun, so silly, so winking at the audience, that it becomes self-aware and a joke unto itself. There's also some really, really good pieces that stand out that are a little bit different from the orchestral structure and skeleton of the score. Like, One Last Cork is just a really energetic piano piece. And there's a couple of those scattered throughout that add a lot of variety and make it really worth listening to. Now, Cliff Martinez is probably one of my favorite composers, so I was very excited to hear that not only was he having a new score coming out in Kimmy, but he was reuniting with Steven Soderbergh for the first time in... Gosh, I think maybe five, seven years since they did the Nick, I believe. And this is a really interesting turn for Martinez, 
because Kimi is much, much more orchestral than I think you'd expect. And in a way, he's channeling a, a bit of Bernard Herrmann, particularly to fit the thriller that this film is. But it's a techno-thriller, as they pitch it at least. And so there are electronics coming through, the things that you really expect from Martinez. But they're always there in a secondary position to the orchestral moments. It's a quick, tight score. I think it's like 30 minutes long, reminiscent of Solaris in that way, where each track leads the next so well that you forget you're listening in a sense, and it can go over and over and over before you know it. Similar to Solaris, you do hear some marimba in there that adds to a sort of dreamlike effect and makes there be a sense of delicateness as well, which is kind of surprising because watching the film and knowing the premise, you think that it would be much more tense, fast-paced, action-packed, but often it isn't. And in that sense, in some of the musical and instrumental choices, it does remind me of Miko Levy's Manos as well, where the music and the film at times almost feel detached from one another, but in a way that really works. Another of my favorites this year is Texas Chainsaw Massacre by Colin Stetson. And I'm another big fan of Stetson's as well. He really came onto the map for me with Hereditary and hasn't stopped. And actually was lucky enough to talk to Colin Stetson about this. Uh, frankly, when I had the email come through asking if I was interested, I assumed I was falling victim to a phishing scam. I really didn't think that they'd be interested in talking to me, but sure enough, his team was, which was awesome. And one of the things that I learned about it, and it's similar to Mark Corvin's Resident Evil score from near the end of 2021, is... Texas Chainsaw Massacre is really Colin Stetson unleashed. There's a little bit of the reins on him, but for the most part, it's just Colin go. And what it results in is a truly brutal score that's fitting because this is a mean, unrelenting, grisly film. Now, it got a lot of crap for some of the premise and some of the characters, but when you wipe all that away, this is truly, truly a chainsaw massacre. And yeah, that might be obvious, but that's the focus of this film. It is bloody and gory and unapologetic for it, and so is Stetson's music. It cuts into your skull and keeps going. And now, of course, that's not going to be for everyone. It might not be for most people, at least for fans of film music, because it eschews so much of the traditional film music stylings that we all come to expect. But it's one where you have the open mind, it's brilliant. Another of the best so far this year, and very possibly of all of 2022, is Michael Giacchino's score for The Batman. And now, it has a two-hour length, which almost every time I see that and I roll my eyes. Heck, I feel like that for scores that are just over an hour, because it feels like there's too much material there. But I think this is the fastest two hours of score I've ever experienced. Now, there's three really, really strong themes in here, but particularly that Batman theme. It's plodding, but in a good way. Slow-moving, daunting, unrelenting. It's going to keep moving forward no matter what obstacles are there. There's also a bit of a 
noiry, inquisitive nature to it. And together it feels like a glacial march rather than pure outright action. And yeah, it is a simple theme, but it works really well, and especially as it has various permutations, that simplicity is not simplistic. It's orchestrated in various ways and has a variety of ancillary instruments and melodies that come and go that give it a lot of variation. Now, this might sound like I'm overhyping it, but I certainly think it's among the best superhero scores of all time. And if you're in doubt, simply listen to Sonata in Darkness, which believes in the close and credits cue, where Giacomo ties everything together for maybe ten minutes. It's just brilliant, and it does remind me, in a sense, of his prior works with Matt Reeves in Cloverfield, where for some reason, although there's effectively no score throughout the whole film, he has a probably eight-minute suite for the end credits, and that's something that Giacomo in particular is one of the best modern film composers doing, is having these really, really robust end credit suites that encompass everything you've heard in the last two or, in the case of the Batman, three hours. Two really good jazzy scores are The Duke by George Fenton and The Outfit by Alexander Desplat. Now, the Duke in particular has kind of a dual identity where it mixes these really somber parts and then really, really lively period jazz. And it's those latter parts that in particular make it a blast to listen to. This is one that has very much fallen under the radar, so I certainly, certainly recommend checking it out. Desplat's score as well has somehow gone kind of unnoticed too, and it also, especially in the beginning, has a really bouncy, fun feeling that slowly makes its way towards something much darker and more dangerous. And it always surprises me, Desplat's career, because he'll do these fairly popular films, or at least harder dramas that get a lot of mainstream appeal and attention, and then he'll go on and do very indie films, or under-the-radar ones, or especially when he's working in France, doing a lot of French films that really no one outside of the local market's gonna see or hear, unfortunately, and it's all really good. He actually has such a deep catalog of scores that are great that you've probably never heard of. One that I was really looking forward to was After Yang by Asuka Matsumiya. Asuka's actually a composer that I'm really glad, it seems like, is finally getting some bigger attention. I first heard about her when she did her score for Sila and the Spades about two or three years ago, which was a really dark, noisy, atmospheric score that, frankly, most people, based on that description, would hate, but was right up my alley. And she's done a few good scores since, so I've really been waiting for the moment where, eventually, that skill and that talent will be recognized, and I think it's here on After Yang, especially since she did a track with Ryuichi Sakamoto, one of the biggest Japanese composers maybe of all time, or film composers at the very least. But it's a really fascinating score that has a mixture of a slower, somber piano, ruminating ambiance and ambient sounds that 
really build a, a texture and an atmosphere that you can fall into. And I think maybe this only happens once in the score, but it is so burnt into my mind. It's like a, a diversion to this just hyperactive electro pop. And it really shows the variance, the variety that Osk is capable of. I mean, it, it has such a mixture of genre that fits really well, but that's also done very expertly. A score that'll probably be in the mixture for best scores of the year. Maybe not for me, because it's not fully my style, but broadly speaking, I hope, because it's quite good, is Ludwig Göransson's score for Turning Red. So it has a really, really cool mixture of genre, where there are some, like, 90s boy band stuff in there. There are some original songs that are, quote-unquote, released from this boy band present in the film. And some of the melodies and music then makes their way into Göransson's score. There's also a lot of hip-hop beats and instrumentation, something that Corinson's really been playing with throughout his scoring career, probably most obviously in Black Panther and Creed, but also in a few of his other releases as well. And uh, some Chinese instrumentation that fits with the Chinese community in Toronto where the film takes place. And it's a really clever, delicate mix. Every piece has its place where it can shine, but... No one aspect of the score and of this genre mix overwhelms or overtakes or is the focal point. It all comes and goes really naturally, really organically. And that's something that Gorenson's shown himself to be very adept at, is taking these what would otherwise feel like disparate genres and mixing them together. That is great. I realize I'm starting to go long, as I tend to do with these, so I'll quickly go through a handful of others. So there are three more experimental scores that I was a huge fan of. The first is The Seed by Lucretia Dalt, and I believe this is actually her feature film scoring debut, which in one sense is really surprising to me because of how good it is, but also isn't at all simply because of how absolutely weird the score is. Dalt is through and through an experimental composer. If you listen to some of her solo work or collaborative work, it is weird, impenetrable almost music. And she takes some of those influences into the seed, where it's very, very strange. Things that you don't really hear that often, if at all, in film music. A lot of tape loops, for instance. But if you're open to things that are truly experimental, this is the score so far of 2022 to listen to. Another composer making her feature debut is Chelsea Wolfe, who teamed up with Tyler Bates to score the porno horror film X. And I loved this score, and I really liked the film too. It's quite atmospheric and quite minimal, but it also mixes like 70s porn funk, and in the score release itself, and this is where those moments are the most noticeable. And I couldn't tell if they were in the film or not. But there is a lot of screaming on the score. Wolf is so good at using her voice. And you'll hear a lullaby or a tongue-in-cheek sexy funk line while you're hearing her just shrieking over top. 
and it is truly frightening. It's like a, a vocal technique that doesn't feel acted. It feels real. It feels like the scream of someone who's truly in pain or truly experiencing something horrific. For that alone, it is so worthwhile. But it also really makes me appreciate how underused the female voice is in film music. I mean, in addition to X, you have some scores by Gazelle to a Nocturne in the Power, Tamar Kali's score for Shirley in particular, and Heather Christian's score for The Craft Legacy, which are some of the best recent uses of female vocalization. And it adds so much diversity and layering and variance and something that can't be replicated with electronics or instruments. And I really hope that more composers see that and use it. The last experimental score that I really liked was Ted K by Blank Mass. I'm a huge Blank Mass fan and was lucky enough to actually talk to him about the score as well. And it's a really cool mixture of gentle electronic ambiance that's almost darkly caressing with a series of really striking dark electronic melodies. Best, I think, is the Montana theme. It's the first track of the score, and it mixes really strong melody with the ritualistic chanting and overriding militarism. And not only is it just a fantastic track, but it sets the feeling for the entire film that Ted Kaczynski believes that he has some sort of eco-soldier and the modern world is an army that's invading this planet, this atmosphere, this environment that he's sworn himself to protect. I don't know if I like it more or less than Blank Mass's debut score, Calm With Horses, released a couple years back, but they're both really good and they both show so much variety that he's certainly not pigeonholing himself into one distinct style, which, if you know anything about his solo career, shouldn't surprise you. I mean, he is capable of such a wide array of work, and fingers crossed that he gets the chance to do something a bit more orchestral, simply because I know that's something he's really looking forward to doing one day. I'll wrap it up with another really notable score, but one that didn't quite jive with me, which is Uncharted by Raman Javadi. This is a really solid score. It's a solid adventure score, good orchestral moments, and uh, a pretty decent main theme. Although what I've heard is that there's actually a lot of very good musical material from particularly the first three maybe Uncharted games that, for whatever reason, wasn't used. I don't really know the games or the music, but this is what I have heard, so don't take my word for it. I've always been a bigger fan of Javadi's TV work, so maybe there's just something about his style that, similar to Junkie XL, just isn't really for me. I think because of that, there's no point in me really going on about disliking aspects of it. Everyone has different tastes, and that's really what makes film music, and really music and film broadly, so exciting. Obviously, I want to share things that people will like, and share what I like, but it'd be a boring world if we all liked the exact same things, and that was that. So, I still recommend checking it out, because a lot of people do like his work, it just tends not to be for me. Now, I hope I didn't bore you too much, 
thanks again for listening along, and I hope I've turned you on to a couple scores that you weren't really familiar with. One more, actually, before I forget, is The Phantom of the Open by Isabel Waller-Bridge. She's done a lot of really great work, and this kind of reminds me of Emma a little bit, simply because of how lovely and sweet it is. Listen to this one, too. But anyways, thanks for listening along, and I'll be back very soon with, fingers crossed, some very big interviews to hopefully wrap up this second season of the Film Score podcast.